Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host and producer, Fabian Xiao, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Marie Asensio and Mina Sahin. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. In spite of varying opinions on disinformation, some experts argue that its effects on our democracies and the international security landscape remain widely underestimated. In the first segment, Mina speaks to Dr. Peter Lowen about Russia's disinformation campaign as a form of hybrid warfare, how it's affecting democratic nations and its implications for policymakers. Marie then speaks to Dr. Maxim Alyukov to explore Russia's disinformation apparatus. How and why does the Kremlin spread disinformation? What are the consequences of disinformation on Russian politics and Russian society? And how has Russian disinformation affected domestic perspectives of the war in Ukraine? Our first guest is Dr. Peter Lowen, director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy and a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto. Dr. Lowen's work has been published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, Nature Human Behavior, American Political Science Review, Political Research Quarterly, and the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, to name a few. He has edited four books and is a regular contributor to the media, including the New York Times, Washington Post, and Globe and Mail. Dr. Lowen, it's a pleasure having you here today on Beyond the Headlines. Could you please tell us a bit about hybrid warfare? What does it entail and how has it impacted the way wars are fought? Well, thanks. It's very nice to be here. So let's just think about two things around around hybrid warfare. Um, if you contrast it with kind of conventional warfare in which countries are engaged in uh, kind of direct fighting with one another using ordinances or using people, um, hybrid warfare is, is an extension of that and that it may include those traditional forms of uh, battles in the land, in the air, on the sea, um, but it may also include elements like um, engaging in cyber warfare where countries are attacking the, the digital networks um, of other countries. It may include things like terrorism, uh, in which there's not declared war with obvious combatants, but there is um, things happening in countries or, or, or against people by, by uh, you know, non-conventional soldiers, in a sense. And then it includes things like uh, sort of widespread disinformation or misinformation um, campaigns. I guess the big distinction between hybrid warfare and conventional warfare is that you're usually pretty... It's usually pretty clear when you're in a conventional war. It's not necessarily clear if you're in a hybrid war uh, because countries may be using things which uh, uh, are happening at a scale that are really disruptive to you, but you can't be sure who's actually doing it, for example. Thank you for that insightful answer, Dr. Lowen. Military strategist Karl von Clausewitz once said, war is nothing more than the continuation of politics by other means. With the means of war expanding to include hybrid warfare, and given the level of uncertainty that surrounds it, have the lines between war and politics completely blurred? Well, it's a good it's a good question, uh, and you know if you invert that observation by by von Clausewitz, it's it's not that war is a continuation of politics by other means, but that politics is is the peaceful version of war, which I think is a better way of thinking about this. That political you know political mechanisms for dealing with things. Are ways that you deal with them peacefully rather than by by force with an agreed set of rules, where what matters is uh, negotiation and and back and forth between people. What we're at now is a stage where things which in the past may have been seen as espionage or as disruptive, um, but not large scale, can actually happen on a large on a large scale. So let me just give you an example. In the past, countries committed acts of espionage against each other all the time. It wasn't unusual for countries in the West towards countries in the East or vice versa to try to engage in uh, surveillance, uh, in listening, uh, an interception of information between between countries. And that wasn't you know, really considered an act of war, though it was, 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 was a dark art. One of the things that's interesting about that is that it was hard to do at scale. It wasn't really possible before to listen to every conversation that was going on in another country. 
But now we're at a we're at a place in time where, given the advan- advances in artificial technology, artificial intelligence, and in, uh, advanced computing, and in uh, computational power, we're at a place where we can actually be listening to and processing millions of conversations at once because we're not relying on humans to do it. We're using machines. Uh, who can recognize speech to to analyze what's analyze what's going on? So, what's the line between espionage and and hybrid warfare? It's actually hard to and surveillance. That line is that line is pretty blurred. So, this can happen at a very large scale. More proactive things, disrupting communication, disrupting networks, can now happen at a scale that it couldn't happen before. So, you know, are the lines blurred between hybrid warfare and other things? Yeah, they are in in really difficult ways for states to understand exactly where the line between espionage and other forms of spycraft um, blurs into uh, warcraft. Well, sounds like a very challenging terrain for states to navigate. So hybrid warfare, also known as nonlinear warfare, is most closely associated with Russia. Some of the tactics employed, which you've already mentioned, include cyber attacks on critical infrastructure and disinformation campaigns. Could you please tell our audience a little bit about the scale and impact of Russia's nonlinear warfare on the states that it has targeted. So what's the impact? I mean, the impact happens at, at some levels, right? Just the degree to which we have to be on a footing to always be ready to address large-scale cyber warfare, for example, is, is disruptive, right? That is an effect. Now, part of that is just getting ready and, and sort of being prepared to deal with uh, these attacks, but just the prospect of the specter of those attacks has had a huge effect on how we think about security in the West. There are cases where Russia has has, has done some real damage. You know, the, the their um, uh, their campaign against Estonia mm. in two thousand seven uh, was a serious one. But for the most part, you know, I don't think we've seen a series of highly effective, sustained cyber attacks from Russia. Not least because it would be war for Russia to engage in it on a huge scale on an ongoing basis. And you have to know that the West would be ready to to respond to it. We saw little bits of that at the beginning of the of, of the at the invasion of Ukraine, that there were demonstrations of what the West could do uh, to Russian cyber infrastructure. We took a much more formal route of using massive sanctions uh, to some effect, but there are other things that the West could do. And then there's the second bit, which is around Russian disinformation and and misinformation. And I guess there's a couple things I would say about that. One is that it is the case that Russia is interested in sowing dissent increasing polarization, spreading misinformation, and otherwise disturbing the information ecosystems mm-hmm. in, in Western democracies. But it's also the case that we're really good at letting them because the problem here ultimately is that we're all a bunch of humans who are inclined towards polarization and inclined towards enmity. And you know we're in an environment where platforms make it easier for us to think worse of other people. So, I, so what's really tricky in thinking about Russian disinformation is thinking about the injection of the virus into our, the, the injection of, the, of a piece of viral disinformation into our system, and then our own capacity to spread it willingly and quickly and, and, uh, and, and organically. The second thing is the bigger problem, right? The second thing is that we're dealing in the realm of ideas, not that, we're, not that we've got someone giving us some bad ideas, but that we're willing to spread them and to believe them. So that's where the, where the misinformation campaign becomes a very serious one. If you want an example of it, I mean, you can look at rhetoric in certain parts of the internet in Canada and the U.S. and Western Europe around the Russian invasion, right? And, you know, people are always able to come up with their own ideas, but to the extent that people have come up with justifications for Russia's invasion and really repeated Russia's view of this of this invasion, which is uh, at once illegal and barbaric, um, is really an indication of how kind of how fertile the soil is for, for, for misinformation and for bad ideas. Um, so Russia didn't have to inject those into our societies. We already had them. It's the nature of having a free and open discourse that people think that things like a Russian invasion can be justified. But my point, kind of the, the summary point is that Russia is, is, is very good at sowing into societies little bits of distrust and little bits of disinformation that, that we then spread like wildfire, partially because of the way social media works but also just because of the way our brains work. So do you think it's just going to get worse from here? No, I don't know I don't know that it's going to get worse. Um, I don't know that it's going to get worse. I mean, I think that what you hope is that the majority of the population has reasonable ideas on things, and I think the majority of the population does. 
right? And that's that's usually enough for democracies to muddle through, right? I mean, the one thing that that's such a limiting factor in mis and disinformation campaigns into the West, whether they're done by China or they're done by Russia, is that we have these organic systems of self-correction, of self-criticism, of open of open dialogue, that they simply don't have in these countries. Mm-hmm. Ideas are really, really dangerous. They're particularly dangerous if you're in a society where you don't let ideas spread. If one can take hold, then it becomes very dangerous. But we've built up these remarkable, through some combination of very hard work and, and very good fortune, we've built up these societies that have the capacity to self-correct. And I think that that actually acts as a natural break or a natural limiter, rate limiter on, on dissent and misinformation. Hmm. Well, that's certainly something to feel hopeful about. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Mina Sahin, and we're joined today by Dr. Peter Lowen, Director of the Hmong School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, to talk about Russia's disinformation campaign. So, Dr. Lowen, could you please give our audience a few concrete examples of Russia's disinformation campaign in the West, touching upon their scale and impact? Well, the, I mean, I think the prime example, the, the one that gets used the most, is is apparent Russian in, uh, interference in the 2016 U.S. U.S. election. Um, I don't think we actually appreciate the full scale of that or the effect of it. Um, and I think that um, I actually don't have a good answer for you about about whether it tipped the scales in the election or not. Right. So what form did it take? Right. It took the form of a lot of bots, a lot of and and, and trolls, kind of fake people but who were, had real people behind them online who were advocating for Donald Trump's uh, election, who were spreading misinformation about Hillary Clinton, et cetera, et cetera. Did it have an effect on the election? This is, this is a really funny one to read because we're motivated to believe that it did. Yeah. If you're a democratic activist in the U.S., you want to believe that the election was somehow tipped in Trump's favor by the Russians and that that, that is really explains, that explains his victory. I'm skeptical, actually, that it had that effect. But what's important, actually, in the geopolitics of this is not actually whether it had the effect or not, but whether people can plausibly believe that it was that it led to the outcome that we saw. Mm. So if Trump wins, he did, and Russia had a disinformation, misinformation campaign in the U.S., they did, then there's a whole number of American activists who can be led to believe that Russia had, had an outsized influence, makes Russia look good, makes America look weak, right? And... It frankly makes Putin stronger around the world because he can be seen to have tipped um, an election. So part of the thing that makes it hard to tease these things out is not only that it's very, very hard to actually trace how these things flow online and to estimate the effects at the level of individuals. That's stuff I spend a lot of time thinking about and trying to do. <laughs> but beyond that, what makes it really difficult is that it's the belief about misinformation working, which is, which is what makes it powerful geopolitically, uh, not only whether it actually can work in reality. So trying to find the balance between making sure that you are giving it enough attention, but not so much that it takes on a life of its own. So it's almost like the more people believe in it, the more powerful the idea gets. Yes, yes, that's, exa- that's exactly right. So I think we want to be pretty level-headed about mm-hmm. figuring out exactly what the effects of these things are. Great. So Dr. Lowen, as a public policy expert, what is your take on the policy response to Russia's disinformation campaign? More specifically, how are leaders rising to the challenge of tackling disinformation? So there's things happening on several levels here, right? There is There are things that we just simply don't see behind the scenes um, with security agencies and militaries confronting this the spread of these things directly. Um, similarly, you know, we don't know exactly what platform companies, Twitter, Facebook, etc., are doing um, to counter this, though they are though they are engaged with it, right? What's What's happening, which is which is really important, and this is this is a this is a feature, not a bug, of our systems, is that countries around the world are experimenting, especially around election times, to figure out how they have a sanitized information environment, information environment which doesn't violate citizens' right to speak freely or to think whatever they want, you know, to think whatever they want. So what they're trying to find is cases of particular interference that they can then notify the public of and try to cut off at its head. So for example, the Canadian government has put together basically a standing body which during election campaigns has the potential to kind of raise a red flag to the Privy Council office about 
uh, an attempt at foreign interference or, or, or spreading disinformation in a campaign, and then to have that information spread out to the to the uh, to the population. Um, we haven't had to use it yet um, in Canada, but that's an example of the kind of body that's being set up. You can hear just in my description of it that it's probably got all sorts of checks and balances built into it. It's not going to be super rapid. It's going to have some bureaucratic elements to it, but that's what you want in a system where. We want to actually, you know, we want to have some restraint in the ability of government actors to tell us what is or isn't disinformation, or what is or isn't misinformation, you know? So I think democratic countries are trying to figure out what the balance is between overcorrecting on this stuff and actually identifying the problem as, as an important one and not just letting it go by. Mm. And I believe that some of your own research into Canadian elections also deals with this subject. A little bit, yeah. So with colleagues at, at McGill uh, and with my lab here at Monk, Monk School of Pearl, we do work on the media ecosystem in Canada, trying to figure out where disinformation misinformation comes from. The biggest place it comes from is from the United States, by the way, because there, there's just no small number of organically developed websites which want to spread misinformation about vaccines or COVID or, 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 uh, or whatever it is, right? Um, I think what's really important to, to recognize is that in the Canadian case, Our information ecosystem is pretty good um, because most people are getting information from a relatively small number of kind of centrist outlets that are that are pretty reliable in dealing in, in, in distributing factual information. So if you think about our three big newspapers, the National Post, the Globe and Mail, and the Toronto Star, they have different political slants, but they're all credible credible outlets. People rely a lot on CBC News, CBC Radio for their information. So it's, it isn't the case that we have people siloed off uh, and or in echo chambers where they're receiving steady streams of mis- and disinformation that we don't have lines of sight into. So we are in a position where, you know, we have a much healthier ecosystem than, than, than you would in the United States, for example, where, you know, the market being so much bigger there, it does make it possible for small purveyors of, of mis- and disinformation to thrive. Thank you for that. Um, so lastly, I just wanted to ask you for some tips on how our audience can spot disinformation. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So what matters is the quality of ideas, right? Not particularly pedantic facts about whether something is true or untrue, right? I mean, I, I think what we have to recognize here is that disinformation is not about trying to convince you that Russia's GDP is 3% bigger than it is, mm -hmm. right? Or trying to convince you about... about um, some fact being untrue. It's about the collection of, of facts and, and, uh, and information that you put together at the level of ideas about the way the world is, the way the world is operating. There's something very, um, there's something very not counterproductive, but, but um, misguided about us worrying about fact checking, for example, with this idea that what really matters is a leader said A, can we find an instance of where they said not A in the past and then fact check them on that? What really matters is is the quality of our ideas and understanding whether our, our ideas have a, a large evidence base, whether they're whether they're drawn from lots of different sources, whether they're credible, right? Whether they're our own, um, as opposed to you know falling for ideas that are that are that are ultimately counterproductive or, or untrue that get put into our put into our ecosystem. So you know things like is the world becoming a better place is not actually a factual statement. You know, how you answer that question depends a lot on how you see the world. And the quality of your ideas, the quality of your answer to that is something that can be easily fact-checked. The things you might bring to, bring to bear as evidence of that can be fact-checked, but the ideas you have are really, what, are really what matter. And I think that, you know, good ideas require debate and disagreement and uh, discomfort. Um, they require you hashing things out with people, bringing a lot of different evidence to bear, and then refining your ideas. So I think that's the thing that we should be most most worried about is, you know, are, are we reading information from enough diverse sources, different viewpoints, um, with different types of information that we can actually have better ideas, right? Or are we doing what humans are likely to do, which is to have a certain view of the world and then spend all of your time reading stuff that confirms that view? How do you do that in your own personal life? Where do you get your news from? What are the sources that you're reading every day? Yeah, so I so I read I read a couple of newspapers every day: Financial Times, Globe and Mail. Those aren't the most broadly, you know, most politically broad um, uh, source of information, but they're but they're good at giving me a very good, I think, overview of what's going on in Canada and overview of what's going on in the world 
in a short in a short bit of time. And then from there, I just try to read. I read a lot of opinion pieces actually from across the political spectrum. Um, I've got you know certain magazines that I tuck into uh, once a month when they when they come out. Um, and then I actually I think I've got a pretty well curated Twitter feed that, that gives me a pretty pretty good diversity of information. Okay, wonderful. Well, but you know I'm no better than anybody else in this world. So. <laughs> Um, is there anything that you want our audiences to be on the lookout for? Anything that is coming out from you? Anything that you have written or contributed to? No, I mean, what I would just say is that this is a really good time to be watching out for... This is a very good time to be seeing how ideas are evolving online because we're actually at a moment in time where, where things really matter. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly around Russia and Ukraine, things really matter. You know, on the one side we have a country of people fighting with great determination for the, the things that we have long said that we care about. Freedom, democracy, self-determination. Ukraine's far from a perfect country, but they are on the right side of history. And Russia is decidedly not on the right side of history there. Uh, I think you can take that to the bank. Um, so if your information environment doesn't reflect that, it's an interesting question as to why. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. And thank you for what has been an incredibly insightful conversation. Once again, that was Dr. Peter Lowen, who joined my co-host Mina for a discussion on Russia's disinformation campaign. For those who just tuned in, you're listening to Beyond the Headlines, a weekly public affairs talk show that airs every Monday at 11am on CIUT 89.5 in Toronto, online through our website and across podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Have you enjoyed the conversation so far? Want to add your voice? Send us a tweet at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. If you have suggestions or feedback for our show, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We're listening. Next up, my co-host Marie discusses Russia's disinformation apparatus with Dr. Maxim Alyukov. Joining us now to discuss Russia's disinformation apparatus is Dr. Maxim Alyukov. Dr. Lukov is a postdoctoral fellow at King's Russia Institute at King's College London in the United Kingdom. He is also a researcher with an independent research group called Public Sociology Laboratory. Dr. Lukov holds a PhD in Social Sciences from the University of Helsinki and an MA in Sociology from the European University at St. Petersburg. His research has been published in a variety of disciplinary and area studies journals, including Politics, Nature Human Behavior, Qualitative Psychology, and Europe-Asia Studies. He also contributes to the public discussion by writing for non-academic media, such as the Moscow Times, Open Democracy, Riddle Russia, and he makes appearances on TV and radio, including BBC, Al Jazeera, Deutsche Welle, Voice of America, and others. Dr. Lukov, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss the topic of Russian disinformation. This topic is very interesting, but unfortunately remains largely ignored in the West. Hopefully, after today's conversation, our audience can be a bit more informed on the ways in which the Kremlin disseminates disinformation, but also what impacts that has not only in Russia, but at home for us as well. So to get us started, could you please tell us about how the Kremlin disseminates this information and just about its overall apparatus to do so. Well, the, the regime, Putin's regime, the Kremlin, they, it has a very uh, sophisticated sort of multi-layered propaganda apparatus within Russia. So there are so-called commanding heights like television channels or major online outlets with large audiences, right? So these are sort of primary, primary channels because uh, Russia is a, is a quite TV-centric country. About a half of Russians, they receive news uh, from, from television. And even those who don't, they still encounter television in their sort of daily life because it's a part of sort of everyday life uh, practices just to have your TV on when you cook or do something. And at the same time, it's complemented by a, a sophisticated sort of online propaganda eco media ecology where some state-controlled outlet has an online version, which are also widely read. And in addition to that, there, there, there are also search engines and news aggregators, which are part of this machine. So, uh, for instance, many people use uh, uh, Yandex, uh, Yandex as a, both a news aggregator search engine in Russia, which is uh, very biased, right? So uh, Yandex, a news aggregator, it, uh, aggregates information only from state control sources. So the narratives which they are spread uh, on television, they are also amplified by 
news aggregators and search engines. And in addition to that, you've got social media ecology, which is also co-opted to an extent by, by the Kremlin. Some networks like, for instance, Anaklasinke are very pro-war and pro-regime. Some social media like Telegram, they are more polarized. So there's a presence of both pro-war, pro-regime bloggers and uh, sort of independent uh, media in opposition. And yeah, so basically this is a hybrid media ecology in the sense that uh, one narrative which is spread by one media can be amplified and reinforced by other media. Uh, this is how it works in Russia. And how about Russia's disinformation campaigns abroad? How is disinformation disseminated abroad versus what you just explained about what the Kremlin does domestically? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so in terms of control, there are sort of different layers of control. One layer of control is when major media executives, they are given direct, they meet with the presidential administration and they are given direct sort of instructions on how to cover something. These meetings happen weekly. Uh, and then in addition to that, they also issue instructions, which are called Temniki, which are basically lists of topics which uh, you have to cover and explanations on how to cover them, right? So they are also sort of disseminated by the Kremlin. In addition to that, they also rely on journalists' good understanding of the official line. So very often you can't really micromanage thousands of media workers. So uh, And the solution to this problem is uh, to rely on journalists' understanding of of the official life, so they basically know how to govern something from the government from the official perspective and they do it on a daily basis. In terms of uh, differences between sort of outreach propaganda targeting Western audiences and uh, propaganda within Russia, uh, there are obviously differences because within Russia there is this large-scale propaganda apparatus, right, and you can basically overwhelm people with all kinds of propaganda uh, by constantly producing propaganda through all the sources, uh, which you can't really do outside of Russia because you don't have major large TV networks, for instance, controlled by Russia outside of Russia in Europe, say. So you have to rely on more sophisticated strategies. So, for instance, if in Russia uh, you can basically produce a lot of propaganda to confuse people, to demobilize people. This is something which wouldn't work, uh, say, in the UK or in in the States, just because you don't have many sources you control. So, for instance, if you look at Russian Kremlin-linked bots, which attempted to meddle in the US election, uh, you can uh, see a sort of swift evolution in their strategy. So in 2016, they started with a very sort of crude strategy just to trying to fabricate events uh, fake events and spread this information and then it appeared it was not really effective so they swiftly sort of evolved and uh, switched towards uh, another strategy which is basically amplifying existing disagreements within American society and polarizing people so Kremlin linked trolls they typically impersonate citizens and sort of create this caricature of partisans, right? So they're trying to pull partisans, like-minded people together and push people with different views away to amplify existing sort of divisions uh, in in American society. And uh, to an extent, the same happens in Europe, right? So if you, for instance, look at RT, which is the main Russian uh, international uh, broadcasters, sort of mouse, uh, mouthpiece, Kremlin's mouthpiece in international relations, uh, their strategy is just to select certain uh, events which already uh, already exist, certain disagreements and dissatisfaction existing in European society, for instance, uh, anti-vaccine, anti-vaccine protests, right? So it's there are already uh, people who are dissatisfied with uh, COVID policies, they exist. So uh, RT just gives them a platform, uh, making their voices, uh, amplifying their voices. Yeah, this is an, an important, I think, differences, which is determined by the fact that you can't really control the media sphere in, in Europe. So you have to rely on more uh, sophisticated strategies. While within Russia, you can produce barrage of of information, of propaganda all the time. And part of these strategies in the West, from what I've studied, is, for example, securing allies and aligning the Kremlin with specific political elites that share positive views of Russia or alternatively negative views of the West. We saw that in the American election in 2016, and we've seen it all across Europe with the far right and the far left. Now, you mentioned the purposes of doing this abroad to be furthering existing divides, but I'm curious to know what is the Kremlin's objective at home for spreading misinformation? 
What does it gain from this? Yeah, it's a good question. And uh, I don't think we can answer the question about goals because in order to understand their goals, we have to actually know what people who produce propaganda think. Uh, you can't really go and interview Solovyov or Russian major propagandists and ask them what their intended goal when they produce propaganda, right? So I think it's easier for, for me as a social scientist to talk about the facts and I don't really know whether uh, these effects are intended so we can basically identify certain effects of propaganda by interviewing people, by conducting surveys and experiments, but these effects can be both intended right so they actually meant to produce these effects or unintended it's just they wanted to produce something else but they produced this effect yeah and there are different uh, sort of effects Th these are not necessarily goals and i would identify i think a couple of uh, important uh, propaganda effects discussed in the literature one is obviously just to provide a, a certain biased understanding of, of how politics works both within russia and outside of russia and in particular biased sort of picture of the situation in Ukraine, but uh, the effects of propaganda can't be reduced to persuasion, right? So we also know that they actively rely on confusion as a strategy, uh, basically providing a barrage of claims which contradict each other. So people get lost and people just understand that they can't understand the situation based on these reports. And it also produces sort of demotivating effect, demoralizing effect. I can't really figure out what's going on, so I'll better stay away from politics. And this sort of demobilization, demoralization effect is a very important part of Russian propaganda machine, right? So the, the main effect is often not persuading, but creating this image that any type of collective action or protest is meaningless. It's, it's created in, in, in several ways. So we know, for instance, that the, the very fact that the regime produces so much propaganda it, it sort of works as a signal for uh, regime opponents, right? So they understand that if the regime has control over information sphere and possesses uh, so much resources, it doesn't make any sense to protest against such a power of machine. So this uh, basically a signaling effect. I uh, send them a signal uh, telling them that a protest is meaningless, right? So they also focus a lot on the idea that there is no alternative. Uh, so within Russia, we have a lot of propaganda, yes, but look at Western democracies. There is no democracy there. They also manipulate the media. And that's why it doesn't make any any, any sense to protest, because uh, it's the same here and there. This barrage of propaganda also sort of creates an image of manipulated citizens. So if I'm, a, I'm an opponent of the regime, uh, if I see so much propaganda in the information sphere, I sort of assume that other people around me are manipulated, uh, affected by propaganda, and therefore they're unlikely to join the protest, and therefore it doesn't make any sense for me to protest, because when people, other people are not likely to join the protest, for me it's just too risky. So there are all kinds of demotivating, demoralizing effects, which are not uh, directly, can't can be directly reduced to persuasion, to providing a, a biased picture of reality. Polarization is an important effect, right? So we, we often think about polarization when we think about uh, Russian disinformation in Europe or in the US, but in Russia, propaganda also creates this image of a healthy patriotic majority and a deviant uh, minority, right? So if you protest the war, it means that you are this deviant Western NATO-controlled uh, freak. And we know based on many experiments and surveys that this strategy is effective. So basically, propaganda manipulates how citizens think about each other, not, not about the events in Ukraine or, or in Russia. Yeah, so basically the idea is that they present this people who protest against the regime as a tiny minority who has no way to influence the situation, which basically convinces some of the people who are against uh, the regime to reconsider their opinions. It's very interesting to analyze the impacts that this disinformation apparatus has on collective action. And I'm very curious to know about younger people, because as someone that is young and studying in the West, studying Russian foreign policy, I think that there is a general belief that these pro-Kremlin views tend to happen in Russia amongst older generations, but that the youth is anti-Kremlin and they are largely discouraged to protest, but that the sentiments are there. Would you say that this is true? Would you say that young people in Russia perceive 
these disinformation campaigns differently or are they also victims of the Kremlin's large disinformation apparatus? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, I'd say that there are no sort of clear dividing lines here. You can't really say that old people are for for the regime and young people are against the regime. But in terms of likelihood, in terms of you know probabilities, people who are younger they are much more likely to be against the regime, against the war, against the Kremlin. So th- there is this sort of tendency. So uh, younger people use the internet more so they receive information from uh, sources which are not controlled by the Kremlin more so definitely you see more sort of dissatisfaction with with the regime among the young people uh, at the same time yeah we shouldn't sort of over estimate and overemphasize the potential of, of the young people to protest because we know again so in the past 10 years the Kremlin has been trying to cope the online sphere a lot and there are many young people who support the regime, who consume information uh, from, say, pro-state, pro-government uh, telegram channels on social media and so on. So uh, young people are more likely to be against the regime, but it's a probability, not a sort of a deterministic causal chain. Thank you for that clarification. I think this paints an uncertain image for the future. And that makes me think about the past and the origins of this disinformation apparatus. Dr. Lukov, you have written several pieces with Dr. Maria Kunilovskaya, and just for audience to know, she holds a PhD in contrastive linguistics, and she's a researcher with the research group in computational linguistics at University of Wolverhampton in the UK, and Dr. Andrei Simenov, who holds a PhD in political science and is currently a senior researcher at the Center for Comparative History and Politics. And one of these pieces was titled Mobilizing for War, State-Controlled Networks and War Propaganda on Russian Social Media. You talk about something titled Network Authoritarianism. Can you tell me a bit more about this and how the Kremlin came to become increasingly more authoritarian on the web? So, yeah, well, this term uh, originally refers to, to China, right? So, and there are several ways of or approaches to thinking about the internet. I think uh, about the link between the internet and democratization. So, at first, when the internet got sort of widespread across authoritarian regimes in the 2000s, I think Larry Diamond was the person who introduced this idea of internet, uh, digital technologies. Uh, the internet as liberation technology, right? Because it makes easier for people to uh, organize and protest and topple authoritarian regimes and so on and so on. But then we saw in 2010s a swift evolution of uh, authoritarian approaches towards the internet. So they recognized it as a threat and started to build their own sort of uh, sophisticated systems of online censorship and in China, it was very, so it is very sophisticated, right? So it's used for surveillance, for finding and identifying dissident activities, for monitoring public opinion to make certain changes in authoritarian policy, uh, to make it more effective. Then there is also a paid army of people who comment, uh, who write political comments online. And uh, basically, the idea of network authoritarianism is that it is. Uh, the, the regime integrates all these digital technologies into uh, propaganda apparatus, uh, using them efficiently to maintain power. And uh, Russia has also, in the past 10 years, there has been a swift evolution of their approaches toward the internet, right? So in 2000, they didn't even consider it as a threat and didn't care about the internet at all. And starting from early 2010, they started to build a, a digital sort of propaganda apparatus step by step, right? So starting from a sort of small actions, for instance, hire, creating, uh, allocating significant budgetary funds to create this uh, machine of uh, online commentary to hire people who would uh, post uh, some comments on topics of interest for the government and also denial uh, those attacks, so denial of service attacks to target oppositional websites. And then step by step, step, there was a sort of evolution of their approaches and then they started, so it's useful to think about it in terms of uh, there is this uh, idea of three generation of controls introduced by Diebert and Pregazinski, who basically claim that the first generation controls, it's about basically blocking specific websites of uh, independent activists or opposition. Who, it's basically a form of 
censorship, right? So then there is evolution from the first to the second generation control. So basically you normalize control by creating a legal framework, right? So you create laws which allow you to control media organizations and online activity. And then the third generation control is the most sort of sophisticated stage when you try to shape online discussions by relying on, on, on paid commentators. And in Russia, we saw sort of how these approaches evolved and uh, they are overlapping. So starting from 2010, they uh, started to create laws which limit online activity. So for, for instance, uh, all kinds of laws which allow the government to block comments at will. So for instance, uh, you create a justification for uh, blocking certain certain types of online uh, commentary. Uh, for instance, if the government, the, the security service, consider them extremists, so you create a certain law, and through this law, you don't need any court stipulations to block this content. So they started to develop that. Then they also developed certain laws which allow the, them to control technical infrastructure, like providers' internet access. Uh, for instance, they oblige them to monitor these communications and the security services can basically get access to your uh, private messages if they want. And it was sort of the main backlash uh, when they tried to block Telegram. That was the reason why they wanted to block Telegram because it's, it provides end-to-end uh, -end encryption and without access to technical infrastructure, you don't have access to citizens' private communication. All kinds of laws like this, right? So they made new segregators to register with the government as official uh, sort of uh, media because uh, it allows you to control them just like other media outlets. Um, there are, I think, about 25, 20 or 25, 20, 30 laws targeting uh, online uh, freedom of expression introduced in the past uh, 10 years. So it's very swift evolution. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's been a very swift process, but I think that in the West, it's a process that has happened in the background. And with that, I would argue that the West has become increasingly much more aware of what has been happening in the Kremlin and in Russia for decades because of the current war that it launched in Ukraine. I think that the West definitely became much more worried about Russian disinformation after the American election, like I mentioned before, and with Russia's meddling in Western Europe and elections and social media. But I think that the war in Ukraine and the different discourses that Russia has put forward pertaining to war in Ukraine versus what actually happens on ground and what we get from Ukrainian independent media is drastically different. So can you tell me about Russia's portrayal of the war in Ukraine at home? How has the Kremlin shaped the perceptions of the war domestically? And how successful would you say that it has been in convincing people of its version of the story? Yeah, well, the, there are several, I'd say, sort of major tropes in underlying Russian state media's uh, representation of the war. In terms of key justifications, I'd say that references to NATO and Donbas citizens in, in eastern Ukraine and Donbass have been the ma major, major justification for the war, right? So when Putin announced the, the invasion, he mentioned four, I think, justifications, the demilitarization, denazification, the protection of uh, Donbass presidents and Russian language or something like that, right? So then it, it became clear that the words, the ideas of demilitarization and denazification, they uh, do not really resonate with the public, right? So people really struggle to comprehend the concept of denazification. It's just too complicated. So major state controlled outlets, uh, television mostly, they stopped using these words. And uh, they mostly, the major sort of themes which remain sort of justifications for the words, uh, NATO, the idea of NATO expansion and the idea of protection of Donbass citizens. So basically, they portray Ukraine as a West-controlled puppet, right? So it's a part of the, the, how they call it the collective West, and NATO is the major sort of idea behind this idea of the collective, collective West. Yeah, so it's not a sovereign state, it's just a puppet of the West. And it, it's important that 
it's a non-undemocratic state. So basically, they repressed their own citizens, including citizens in Eastern Ukraine, right? So the very idea of Maidan protests uh, is linked to the idea of repression. So there were people living in Eastern Ukraine who were against these pro-Western policies, and then Kiev government tried to repress them. Yeah, the idea of Nazism is uh, important trope, right? So basically, Ukrainian authorities they nurture and amplify radical Nazist uh, voices within Ukraine. So it's uh, an important idea, and all these justifications these are justifications for for the war. So the portrayal of the war, but an important sort of element here is how they frame the the invasion. So since the February, they have been framing the invasion as a sort of limited technical military operation, right? So they call special military operation, uh, trying to make this point that it's not actually a war between Russia and Ukraine. It's just this swift military action, just uh, just like we did in Syria and other countries. So you have nothing to worry about. It's not like a war uh, which affects the whole society, but obviously. In fall, this narrative was undermined because they announced the mobilization. Uh, And then there are two sort of contradictory narratives. So on the one hand, they frame it as a special military operation conducted by professional soldiers. And on the other, they need to explain the mobilization to people somehow. So they also uh, sometimes acknowledge that it's a full-scale war. And you can see sort of the evolution of, of their strategies. So in the first part of the war, they tried to frame it as something conducted by a narrow group of professional soldiers. And then they had to switch to actually and acknowledge that this war is a war uh, in order to justify mobilization. Would you say that these discourses, these Russian created, largely Russian created discourses and justifications of its war in Ukraine have affected the fighting on the ground? Or in other words, have Russian disinformation discourses changed the strategic outcome of the fighting that takes place in the ground or perhaps in any other way, any other strategic way? So speaking about the effects on the events on the ground, that's very difficult to assess, right? So we can evaluate the effect of propaganda on people because we can actually study it, right? So we can run an experiment or survey, but it's sort of difficult to assess how this events, how, how uh, this information affects the events on the ground. I know that they've been trying to use it as a, as a step. So for instance, uh, when they launched the invasion, uh, they created a network of telegram channels in Ukraine, right? So each town, each village, which was supposed to be occupied by, by Russians, it had its own sort of telegram channels created by, uh, by Russian security services, which were supposed to win trust by, by uh, sharing some uh, content from uh, local telegram channels, but also from Russian propaganda channels. So they created this infra- infrastructure, which was supposed to provide informational assistance to uh, the occupied to the occupying forces. Uh, we don't know to what extent it actually proved to be effective because we know that m- most of the channels were abandoned, especially in the territories which were taken by Ukraine. So uh, the very kind of operation, Russia's operation, is, was not very effective and is not very effective. And th- therefore, I yeah, uh, it's difficult to say whether this strategy produced any effect because in these areas which were taken by Ukraine, well, uh, the operation failed, and therefore uh, we don't know to what to what extent their informational measures were uh, effective. So I know that, um, for instance, it can have certain effects on the Western publics and their understanding of the events in Ukraine. Because, for instance, some of the largest uh, Kremlin-controlled Telegram channels, which provide open source intelligence and reporting on the war, such as OSINT, uh, such as Rybar, for instance, they're widely read uh, by specialists outside of Russia. So, for instance, if you look at the reports of the Institute of the Study of War, they often rely on uh, these insights taken from uh, telegram channels, uh, Russian pro-war telegram channels. And at the same time, we know that the Kremlin uses these channels to spread disinformation. So they are run by by people who are interested in this war, but sometimes they're just given certain information by FSB because the FSB wants this information to uh, be spread and uh, they want this information to reach Western audiences. And at the same time, Western military analysts uh, rely on this insights from these channels. It 
I can easily imagine that some of the sort of information provided by these channels is a deliberate disinformation spread by the Kremlin, but it's sort of difficult to, to, to assess whether it actually works. Dr. Lyukov, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining Beyond the Headlines once again. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I would love to keep discussing this topic with you, but I'm sure that our audience feels much more informed about the reality that is Russia's disinformation apparatus and its impacts on Russian politics, but also abroad and our own perceptions about things that are happening around us. I can only end by saying thank you and we hope to have you on Beyond the Headlines sometime soon. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It was an interesting conversation. Thanks. That was Dr. Maxim Alyukov, who joined my co-host Marie for an insightful discussion on Russia's disinformation campaign. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. That wraps up our show for the week. We were joined today by Dr. Peter Lowen from the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto and Dr. Maxim Alyukov from King's Russia Institute at King's College London. We'd like to express our gratitude to our guests for coming down to the show to discuss the nature of Russia's disinformation campaign, how and why to do so, and the implications of this protracted campaign. Today's show was produced by me, Fabian Xiao, and I was joined by my show hosts Mina Zahin and Marie Asensio. If you liked today's episode, please like and review us wherever you're listening. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all of our episodes on our website at www.beyondheadlines.net as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves. Goodbye.